Growing in God's Word and learning how to take up our cross and follow Jesus. This is Crosswalk with Pastor Clay Stevens from Cross Culture Church in Raleigh. If God's Word is the way that I find my way in life, then doesn't it make sense that I should learn all that I can about all of God's Word? What if you could know the future before it happened? Do you think it would change the way you live? God's Word will show me how I'm supposed to live my life, where I'm to go, what I should do, what I shouldn't get into. I'm Rick Freeman. Hello and welcome to Crosswalk. Today we move into the second half of the book of Daniel. We've been working our way through this exciting book for a number of months now in our series, Daniel, Unshakable Faith, Unbreakable Promise. Well, in the first half of the book of Daniel, we read some great stories about Daniel and his friends and the faith they displayed in what must have been extremely challenging circumstances. If you've been with us throughout this series, we certainly pray that your faith has been strengthened by their example. But beginning in chapter 7 and moving through the rest of the book of Daniel, we're going to be looking at predominantly prophetic passages. Perhaps the application may not seem quite as readily available or that it's quite as obvious. It's still there, and my hope is that I will bring it out. And as Pastor Clay is going to explain, that requires a little more work on our part. Prophecy can seem complicated, but it's also exciting to see the accuracy of God's Word in predicting future events, and as we contemplate how God is going to bring this whole thing to a conclusion. We're glad you've joined us today, so grab your Bible and open with us to Daniel chapter 7. ability to know the future. There have been lots of people throughout history who have claimed to know the future, right? But in truth, there have been very few people who have actually, accurately been able to foretell or to prophesy about the future. But Daniel was one of those guys. This morning, if you have your Bible with you, you can open to Daniel chapter 7 Uh, Because we're going to be reading in Daniel chapter 7. We're going to read the entire 7th chapter. And yes, that's a lengthy passage of scripture. But um, I, I usually do this. Sometimes I'll break it up. But I usually do this because I just think it's very important that we understand the context whenever we're studying something. Now Daniel chapter 7 is significant in that it deals with prophecy. And this is... Uh, If you've looked ahead or if you've studied the book of Daniel before, you know that there are 12 chapters. And so, in essence, we are halfway through the book of Daniel. We're now moving into the second half of the book of Daniel. It took about half a year to do that, so we're on pace to be done by the end of 2013. Uh, It will be before then. But but we're moving into the second half of of the book of Daniel. And uh, it, it, it deals significantly with prophecy. As a matter of fact, almost exclusively, it deals with prophecy. Now, we've looked at some prophecy... Uh, some prophecy sections in chapters 1 through 6. But beginning in chapter 7, let me just say this right at the beginning and then we're going to read the whole text. Beginning with chapter 7, the, the, the prophecy section goes off the scale. The, the, the prophecy uh, quantity in the text is off the scale. Beginning in Daniel chapter uh, 7 this morning. So I'm going to read the entire Uh, text, and y'all are going to stay with me, right? The text on the screen as well. If you don't happen to have a copy of God's Word with you, we do provide uh, that for you also, and it's up on the screen. So let me just begin to read Daniel chapter 7. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, so if you've been with us in the study, by the way, you may may recognize, okay, we've backed up now a little bit chronologically. We've gone back to Belshazzar, the king. we'd, We'd already been through him when he saw the handwriting on the wall, but now Daniel is, is, is 
relating to us a, a different episode in his life. So in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions in his mind as he lay on his bed. And then he wrote the dream down and he related the following summary of it. Daniel said, I was looking in my vision by night and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And four great beasts were coming up from the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had the wings of an eagle. I kept looking until its wings were plucked and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. A human mind was also given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one, resembling a bear. And it was raised up on one side and three ribs were in its mouth between its teeth. And thus they said to it, Arise, devour much meat. And after this I kept looking, and behold, another one, like a leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird. The beast also had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrifying, and extremely strong, and it had large iron teeth. It devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet. And it was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. While I was contemplating the horns, behold, another horn, a little one, came up among them, and three of the first horns were pulled out by the roots before it. And behold, this horn possessed eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth uttering great boasts. I kept looking until thrones were set up and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His vesture was like white snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames. Its wheels were a burning fire. A river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands were ascending him, and myriads upon myriads were standing before him. The court sat, and the books were opened. And then I kept looking, because the sound of the boastful words which the horn was speaking, and I kept looking until the beast was slain, and its body was destroyed and given to the burning fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but an extension of life was granted to them for an appointed period of time." I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed As for me, Daniel, my spirit was distressed within me, and the visions in my mind kept alarming me. And I approached one of those who was standing by and began asking him the exact meaning of all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of these things. These great beasts, which are four in number, are four kings who will arise from the earth. But the saints of the highest one will receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever for all ages to come. Yeah, I would have amen right there. That was, that was good, but I, that's just me. Then I desired to know the exact meaning of the fourth beast. 
which was different from all the others, exceedingly dreadful, with its teeth of iron and its claws of bronze, and which devoured, crushed, and trampled down the remainder with its feet. And the meaning of the ten horns that were on its head, and the other horn which came up and before which three of them fell, namely that horn which had eyes and a mouth uttering great boast, and which was larger in appearance than its associates. I kept looking, and that horn was waging war with the saints and overpowering them. Until the Ancient of Days came, and judgment was passed in favor of the saints of the Highest One. And the time arrived when the saints took possession of the kingdom. And thus he said, the fourth beast will be a fourth kingdom on the earth, which will be different from all the other kingdoms, and will devour the whole earth and tread it down and crush it. As for the ten horns out of this kingdom, ten kings will arise... And another will arise after them, and he will be different from the previous ones, and will subdue three kings. He will speak out against the Most High, and wear down the saints of the Highest One, and he will intend to make alterations in times and in law, and they will be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. But the court will sit for judgment, and his dominion will be taken away, annihilated and destroyed forever." Then the sovereignty, the dominion, and the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heavens will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all the dominions will serve and obey Him. At this point, the revelation ended. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts were greatly alarming to me, and my face grew pale, but I kept the matter to myself. Let's pray. Father, uh, that's a lot to chew on, a lot to take in, and I've got something to say about even that uh, today. And so I ask that as we, we begin to talk about prophecy and dive in uh, to this word that you gave to your prophet, Daniel, I pray that you would give it also to our hearts and to our minds, that we would, uh, that we would receive understanding from you and make application from you. I am just, just and honored to be your messenger boy as I understand your word and as I believe you've taught me uh, and as you've taught others, Father God, would you uh, take this word, which is quick and alive and sharper than any two-edged sword, able to divide soul and spirit, even joint and marrow, will you take this, do surgery on our hearts and lives, cut out of our hearts and lives what doesn't belong, Lord, whatever it might be. Maybe it's, maybe it's covetousness, maybe it's anger, maybe it's gossip, maybe it's laziness, so many things that can come in into our flesh, Lord. May you sow the, cut those things out of our lives and sow into our lives what we need to bring you honor and glory and to be more like Jesus. In his name we pray, amen. It's going to take a couple of weeks at least to do Daniel chapter 7. I'll just go ahead and tell you that and then I'll explain why in just a moment. Uh, but I want to start this morning uh, with, with this idea. If you'd like to f- fill in blanks, if you'd like to take notes, there's an outline on the back of your information sheet and you can do that. I want to start this morning with the reason. Uh, we want to start with the reason. Why uh, do we study prophecy? Why do we bother? Now, let me just go ahead and say this. In, in dealing with the reason, I'm not taking this specifically from Daniel 7, but it is a very biblical concept. And that is uh, to, to understand why do we bother with studying the harder passages. Why look at prophecy at all? And in the context of where we are, what specifically do we gain from Daniel chapter 7? 
as I said a moment ago, from 7 on till the end of the book, it's almost exclusively prophecy. Now, most of you probably already know this, but what that means is it's going to get harder. This is going to get harder as we go on through this book. It's going to take a little more work. We're going to have to delve into the text a little deeper. And, and that's, that's not always easy for us to do. It's not always easy to look at the harder passages of Scripture. And I'll explain why I think that is in a moment. But when we look at a passage like Daniel chapter 6, Daniel in the lion's den, where we've been the last few weeks, or when we look at Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in in Daniel chapter 3, when we look at passages like that and accounts like that, it's very easy to... uh, pull the spiritual truths that they're, I mean, they're, they're basically just laying right there on the surface to, to just bring up, you know, the faithfulness of God or, or how we need, to, we need to have faith, we need to trust in God no matter what the situation is. It's very easy to see that type of application, right? But when we get into some of the harder patches, particularly when we get into prophecy, perhaps the application may, may not seem quite as readily available or that it's quite as obvious. It's still there. And my hope is that I will bring it out. But it's a little harder to get to. So when we get to prophecy, it requires a little more gray matter to be employed. A little more time has to be invested. We have to dig a little deeper to get to it. And that's a problem for our culture, quite honestly, of which you are a part Because we live in a culture today, I believe, as a student of people and as a student of culture and after more than 20 years of ministry, I have watched this this philosophy, this mindset um, infiltrate and saturate our culture. And it is a, a mindset of entitlement. And saddest of all, I have seen it creep into the church. Oh, just, just give it to me. Just, just give me the answer. I, I, don't, I, don't want, I don't want to I don't work for it. I, I don't, it's too hard. I don't have the time. I don't want to do any in-depth Bible studies. I, I don't want to get into all that stuff. Just give me three steps for a better marriage. Or four steps to, uh, for having joy or, or something like that. Hey, and listen, can I say this? It's not that having steps or making it easier is a bad thing. It's certainly not. I, I, I want to do that. When I'm preaching or writing or whatever case, I certainly want to make it as easy as possible. It's just that some things that are worth having, ladies and gentlemen, are not that easy to come by. Some things have to be fought for and struggled for and and you have to sweat and toil and, and dig and claw to get to it. And can I say this? By doing so, it is even an indication of the value that you place on the thing or the person that you are Seeking after. Do you understand what I'm saying? That it is in in the effort, the desire, the willingness to work to get there. That indicates what kind of value I place on that thing or that one that I'm trying to get to. What I'm talking about here is a deeper commitment to get to where we need to get. Look at this passage in Deuteronomy chapter 4. God speaking to the people visually says, From there you will seek the Lord your God and you will find him, watch this, if you search for him with all your heart, 
and with all your soul. Eight other times in the book of Deuteronomy alone, the idea of seeking God with all of our heart or with all of our mind or might is used. Eight, nine times total in the book of Deuteronomy alone, seek God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your strength, with everything that you are. How about this passage in Jeremiah? Maybe some of you know, Jeremiah chapter 29. You will seek me and find me. Will you finish reading that with me? When you search for me with all your heart, with every bit of who I am to search and and reach out and find and discover who God is. How about Jesus? I mean, it's always important to see what Jesus had to say about this. Well, as usual, Jesus is usually raising the bar. Here's what Jesus uh, says in Mark 12, 30, and Luke 10. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, with every bit of who you are. And I read those texts and I think, wow, that sounds intense. It is intense. That sounds like it calls for uh, quite a commitment. It does call for quite a commitment. And do you see the problem, ladies and gentlemen? Do you see the problem? We live in a shortcut culture. Do you know that? We live in a shortcut culture. What's the easiest way to have it? What's the fastest way to have it? I don't want to wait. I want it in 30 minutes, hot and ready. I, I don't, I, there, ladies and gentlemen, there is no microwave recipe to a personal relationship with God. There isn't. You have to dig and scratch and toil and sweat. And we can't pass over the harder passages simply because they're harder. We have to be willing to get in. And see what God has to say. So that's, that's what we're going to do. All right. Thank you. <laughs> All right. Let's, let's look at, let's come back to that question. Okay, why then? Why, what are the reasons we do it? Why, why study prophecy? Why look at it? Why does it matter? Let me just give you some blanks to fill in here. First, uh, to instruct. Now, listen, I know that that may not be the sexiest reason. That may, may not be the most glamorous reason, but it's a very important reason to instruct us on the whole counsel of God, to learn what all of God's word says, not the, just the passages that deal with happiness or marriage or sex or, or whatever might be the popular topics today, but to learn all of it. Have you ever read this? Psalm 119, verse 105 your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Now, I, any of y'all could do this, this, but modern translation, God's word will show me how I'm supposed to live my life, where I'm to go, what I should do, what I shouldn't get into. His word is that, that lamp. So if God's word is, is the way that I find my way in life, then doesn't it make sense that I should learn all that I can about all of God's word? We study this hard stuff, and it was. I mean, it's hard, right? Y'all read that with me, didn't you? Most of you weren't zoned out yet. I mean, it's some weird stuff in there, right? I mean, there's, you know, lions and leopards and bears, and they're raised up on one side, and they got some ribs in their mouth, and, and there's some big, right? To instruct. Second, to influence. To influence. All right, I'm going to park here for a little bit. I'm going to talk about Wait, Where's my soapbox again? I need my soapbox. Something to get back up on it. All right, now listen to me. Everything that comes to us or comes into us influences us. Do you, do you understand? Do you agree with that statement? Well, that's okay. If you don't, it's all right. I'm the one that's up here standing talking. So 
to, everything that comes into us influences us. It has some impact on us. It creates in us our, here it is, world view. Does everybody understand what I mean when I say the word worldview? If not, worldview is, is how you perceive your world. It's, it's what influences you. It's, how, it's what you think about the things that you see and hear and experience in life. Those things that, that come into you are what shape that worldview. It, it might be, we certainly hope that it would be your parents. It certainly is your peers, your teachers, your textbooks, the news, Facebook, television shows, movies, music that we listen to. All of those uh, information sources that come to us and come into us affect us. They help to shape and to sustain our worldview, the way we perceive our world, the way we see our world. You with me? Does that make sense? You understand what I'm saying? Everybody has a worldview. Okay, I don't know, you may not think of it that way, you may not have thought of it before, but you have a worldview. Everybody has one, and that worldview is, how, is, the, is the lens through which you see your world and how you interpret what you hear in the news or somebody tells you a story or what you think about this political idea or this religious idea or, or this, you know, whatever it is. It's shaped, that's your worldview. Well, guess what should be the predominant shaper and sustainer for the worldview of fully devoted followers of Jesus. Yeah, Ernie's holding his up. The Word of God. The Word of God should be the primary, in, in some sense you should say it, it, it should be the only, because you would hope that our parents are giving us that, and that's really, but it should be the primary shaper and sustainer of the worldview that you and I have. It should influence us to make decisions and to see our world based on what God's Word says. And regardless of whether it's popular or not popular or, or anything else, it, it has to be what shapes our lives. So we study the harder stuff because it, because it can have an influence on our lives, and it, and it should. Uh, Cindy and I uh, went to, uh, took our two oldest grandsons to see an uh, uh, animated movie uh, recently, uh, the, the Croods. The Croods? Let's see, to see The Croods. Took our grandkids to see The Croods. It was cute. It was clean. It was funny. And it had within it this blatantly humanistic message running throughout the course of the, uh, of, of the movie. In the movie, I don't know how many of y'all have seen it, not seen it, but in the movie, uh, there's these cave people. They're, they're living, in, living in a cave. And, and the head crude father guy um, has these rules. And the rules are not to be broken. And the number one rule is you never leave the cave after dark, when the sun goes down. You don't leave the cave after the sun goes down because the dark is bad. Darkness is bad. Never leave the cave. You must always obey the rules no matter what. Well, in the movie, this super cool, young, hip guy comes along. And uh, he begins to show first uh, the, the daughter, but then begins to show the whole family that, that really that's not right. That there's a whole world out there to discover. That there's all types of beautiful things that they, that they can discover and that, you know, all this. And, and he begins to, to show them a, a whole different perspective. 
And of course, the father is fighting it the whole way. And the father's saying, no, the, the rules are good and, you, and you, you don't break the rules and never, you know, never go out of the cave. The cave is where we should be. The cave is where we've got to get back to. The cave is where it's safe. We, we've got to be in the cave. That, that's, that's his whole thing. But by the end of the film, of course, uh, the young, hip, cool guy who is the hero of the story uh, comes, uh, convinces them all him, and even the father comes to realize uh, and here's the statement he makes, and I believe, it, because it, it jumped out at me when he said it, uh, this is almost an exact quote, if it's not an exact quote. He said, it's okay to break the rules, the ones that keep us in the dark. Now, ladies and gentlemen, if you do not think that that message is intended to slam traditional Judeo-Christian values and what we have understood to be biblically right or biblically wrong, if you don't think that that's the intended message of that, of that film, you are extremely naive, I'm sorry. Because there is this, there is this mindset that, that, that this is the rules and this is what's keeping us in the dark and that we have to come out of the dark and be enlightened, which is what the super cool hip young guy was doing. He was enlightening the group. And, I, you know, I, I've always told people, you just, you just have to choose whether, who, who you're going with, who you think is right, who you think is wrong. But God says that this, this is a lamp unto your feet, a light unto your path. I'll guide you. I'll show you how to live life. I'll show you what's right, what's wrong, what you should do, what you shouldn't do. If you'll follow this, that's what I'll do. It's to influence you, the idea that we need to be influenced. So uh, let me just say this. Um, five years ago, when God birthed in my heart the idea for this church. It was, it, it was based on the, the, this foundational idea that God will settle for nothing less than fully devoted followers of Jesus. You, you hear what I said? Let me say it again. God will settle for nothing less than fully devoted followers of Jesus, emptied of themselves and filled with him. And so everything that all of us who've been part of cross-culture, everything that we've done, has, we've, we've tried to design the church so that we can accomplish that task, so that, so that every person can understand what it means to be a fully devoted follower of Jesus, so that every person can love the Lord their God with all their heart, with all their soul, with all their mind, and with all their strength. We don't get it right all the time, I'm sure. We don't make everybody happy all the time, I know. But that's, that's the design. So can I just say this to you? Just, I'm, I'm still on my soapbox, so bear with me. That's why we're going to keep pestering you to be in a life group, get plugged into a life group, get involved in a life group where you can share life in a small community group of people where you can study the Word of God together and, and maybe ask questions and research some more, where you can share and serve and be a part of some of that. We're going to continue to push you to do that. That's why we're going to continue to, to remind you of God's commandment to you to, to serve in a local body, give to a local body, invite others to a local body to be a part of this. That's why we will continue uh, to focus on the meaning and the message of our music and not so much the style. We, we had a guy, we had a guy that left cross-culture uh, over our music um, a, a while back. He didn't, he didn't like the style. He didn't, he didn't care for the style. It's okay. There's all different kinds of styles and genres, and that's fine. I like all different kinds of styles uh, of, of music, but, but he didn't like the, the style of the music. What ticked me off, and I'll just be honest with you, it ticked me off. He said that cross-culture's music didn't glorify God. I about got in the flesh. I'm just telling you, I about got in the flesh <laughs> o- over that. 
Because like I said, folks, can I say, I know everybody's got different preferences and style. I know that. Some like country western. Some like the piano and organ. Some, some like more drums. and ba- I understand that. We picked a style that we felt like would, would, uh, would, would be more uh, re- received better by perhaps those who were unchurched, that they might, could connect with that better. But it has nothing to do with the style. It has to do with the meaning and the message. And if you hear anything in the message of our music other than, than Jesus and the glory of God and, and salvation, that's so you hear anything other than that, I, I want you to kill John Spolino. No, 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 not really. Because no. No. I know his heart. I know, I know he's going. So we're going to continue. Listen, we are going to continue. I'm running out of time here. We are con- going to continue to devote the lion's share of the time of a service on Sunday, the big gathering we got there. We're going to continue to put the lion's share of that into the preaching of the Word of God. That's, that's, what, that's what we're going to do. Because I had a guy came in my office one time at the last church I pastored, stormed in my office unannounced, didn't have an appointment, demanded my secretary to, to see me because he had been to another pastor, and that pastor had to complain about the, the length of my messages, the length of my sermons. And, uh, and he came into my office to tell me that uh, that pastor told him that any, any preacher, anybody that couldn't say what they needed to say in 10 minutes or less didn't need to say anything. It didn't take me 10 minutes to tell him what I thought of that. No, no actually, I was quite, I was quite gracious. Uh, I was quite, quite uh, gracious with the gentleman. By the way, I'm not, I'm not, yeah, I am. That gentleman became sick not long after that appointment in my office, and he died. I, I, I can't say what needs to be said in 10 minutes or less, and I won't rush through the Word of God. It's, it's, just, it's just too important. You understand? I'm, I'm trying to give you reasons why you, you, should, say, you should say, oh, I can't, you know, I shouldn't bail out on this. I need to stay in this. I need to find out what them three ribs are in, that teeth, in the mouth. I, influence. Influence. And then one more, uh, real quickly, uh, to involve you. To involve you. Ladies and gentlemen, there is a cosmic battle going on right now for the eternal destiny of men and women. Do you understand that? Do you know that? Cosmic battle. The forces of good against the force of evil. However you want to look at it, whatever you want to say it, the scripture is very clear that God has come, as John talked about this morning as we worship the Lord so beautifully, that God has come to redeem mankind, to say to you, listen, you don't have to go to hell. You have an eternal spirit. You will live forever, one place or the other. But I have sent my son to sacrifice so that you might have eternal life. You don't have to go there. You can come with me and spend eternity in paradise. Now, I don't know what all that means. I don't have to. But that is hanging in the balance and, and can I ask you a question? No, nobody has to raise their hand. Nobody has to answer out loud. But when is the last time you tried to share something about Jesus with somebody? When's the last time you invited somebody to attend here at Cross Culture? For some of you, it, it may have been three days ago. Some of you may have been three weeks ago. For some of you, you've never done it at all. And God wants us to get involved in this thing. That's why he's telling us this. Now, we're going to get to some exciting stuff here in a minute. We're going to get some exciting stuff next week. And where this thing is going. Because you can probably tell even from the first reading that it's not just talking about history. We're going somewhere in the future. But we've got to get involved in this. We've, we've got to care enough about where people will spend eternity to speak up and say, listen, I don't know if you've ever thought about this or I don't know if this will make you mad or I, I, don't, I don't know if you'll still be my friend, but I need to tell you something. God has saved me. He's redeemed me. Will you go to heaven when you die? Okay. Um, 
let, let's get into it. That's, so th- th- those are the reasons, at least some of the reasons uh, to, to instruct, uh, to influence, and to involve us in this work. So it's worth putting the effort and the time in. So now let's get to, at least as far as we're going to get to this one, let's get to the revelation. Okay? Let's get to the revelation. There's a lot. Wow, we read all 28 verses, and there's a lot in there. Most of it we're going to cover uh, next week. But let me say this to you. You know, I'm, man, I'm learning a lot about this as I go. I'm still trying to figure stuff out. I'm trying to pour over God's Word, and I'm trying to do cross-references in, in other passages. I'm looking and seeing what other guys, what other commentators, what, all, what do they say, what do they think about this. So I don't stand up here, you know, to impress you or think that I, you know, I've got it all figured out or anything else. It, much of prophecy is, is mysterious, God has his reasons for that as well. But let's talk about the revelation itself. I want to say uh, right from the beginning, and I think this is a blank that you can fill in if, if you'd like to do that. Uh, one of the things that you need to understand is that there is a direct correlation between Daniel chapter 2 and Daniel chapter 7. You need to understand that as we, as we get into Daniel chapter 7, especially if you've been with us throughout this study in the book of Daniel, if you're with us in chapter 2. You need to understand that there is a direct correlation between Daniel chapter 2 and Daniel chapter 7. Okay? In other words, uh, in Daniel chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream, and he sees this, go- this statue, this giant statue. You guys may remember that. In Daniel chapter 7, as we, ju- as we read, Daniel sees these four beasts coming up out of the, the sea. And so it, it, you read it, and you may think, well, I, I don't, that, seems, that doesn't seem the same. That seems like Nebuchadnezzar saw one thing, and, and Daniel saw something else. Here's the correlation. They're both referring to the same thing. Almost all Bible students who have studied the book of Daniel are in unanimous agreement that, that the kingdoms that Nebuchadnezzar sees in Daniel chapter 2 are the same kingdoms that Daniel sees in Daniel chapter 7. You with me so far? Okay, y'all. <laughs> You're doing good. Hang in there. I know it's a lot. I know it's a lot to, to take in. I, I understand that. All right. Um, now, we might ask the question real quick. We might ask the question, well, why would God, if, if it's the same thing, but it, but it kind of reads different, Nebuchadnezzar sees one thing and Daniel sees another, why would God do that? Why would he give us the, the, the vision twice, or at least the, the meaning of the vision? Why, why would he do it twice? Actually, more than that, because it's going to show up again when we move on to the further chapters in Daniel. But, so, so why would God do that? Well, uh, it's, you know, in some sense, it's a matter of speculation. Maybe part of it's just because God just is trying to establish in our hearts that he wants us to see. I can say it however I want, but you need to understand, I, I'm God, I'm on the throne, I'm in control, and this is what's going to happen. Maybe that's part of the reason. And maybe, I don't, and again, this is pure speculation, but maybe part of the reason is because God wants us to see this from two different perspectives. Think about this. Nebuchadnezzar, who at that time thought of himself as a god. He, he, he made people bow down and worship him. He was full of pride and arrogance and, and that sort of thing. In Nebuchadnezzar's dream, he sees this giant statue and it's big and it's, it's strong and it's valuable. It's got, it's got gold and silver and it's got strong metals like bronze and iron and, and it's this powerful thing and it, and, it, and it shadows over all the land. You know, it's just great, big, giant, powerful thing. But in chapter 7... Rather than a man who thinks of himself as a god, God gives the vision to Daniel, the man of God. And rather than see this, this big giant statue, this majestic, powerful thing, which, by the way, is how, how men tend to think of themselves. That's how we tend to think of our world, isn't it? That's how men without God, I'm saying, they say, you know, this is my world. I can do what I want to accomplish. This is my kingdom. This is my little, this is my, look at, look at what, 
right? But when, but when Daniel sees it, I believe Daniel's seeing it more from God's perspective. Now, they're both gods, I understand that. But it's more like when God sees the work of man, the kingdoms of man, and all that man can do, it's just like a bunch of wild beasts, that's all it is clamoring and and climbing and scratching and clawing and killing and murdering, whatever they can to get to the top, whatever I can to get to the top. It's just just like a bunch of wild beasts. I don't know if that's why God gives it in two different ways, but I think it's certainly interesting. All right, I'm going to try and walk through a little bit of this real quickly before we close this morning to let you fill in a few blanks if you like uh, to do that. But in in verses 2 and 3, there's a reference to the great sea or to the sea. Biblically, that is a reference to the nations or the, the people groups of the world. Um, several other places in Scripture, this is done, the sea or the great sea is, is, is a reference to the nations. You understand what I mean by the nations, the kingdoms of the, of the world of that, of that time. Uh, Ezekiel chapter 26, I know it shows up in, in Isaiah Dan, uh, Revelation, I think, chapters 13 and chapter 17. It, the sea, the great sea, it's a reference to the sea of humanity, if you will. And just like an ocean, if you've ever been to the ocean when it's churning and turned up, and just like that, out of the sea of humanity, these four empires, these four kingdoms will, will rise up historically through, through time. And Daniel sees that. And so the first one that he sees is a lion. This lion appears... In verse 4. And it has wings. It's, it's a lion but it has wings. Which would probably be a, uh, an indication that this is not only a, a ferocious kingdom. Not only a, a, a powerful kingdom. But all, also a very swift uh, kingdom. Every, able to overtake and, and conquer uh, very quickly. And if you happen to remember from, from chapter 2 and the, the order that they went in. But the, the lion represents the Babylonian Empire. It was the head of gold in chapter 2. Do you remember? It was the head of gold in chapter 2. It's the Babylonian Empire. And certainly it was ferocious. And it did conquer much. And they moved swiftly. By the way, uh, it's kind of interesting thing in verse 4. latter part of verse 4 says, I kept looking until its wings were plucked and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man and a human mind was given to it. I uh, don't know for sure, can't really say this for sure, but, but more than likely this is a reference to God's humbling of Nebuchadnezzar in, uh, in Daniel chapter 4. If you happen to remember when we did that study, as I said a moment ago, Nebuchadnezzar was full of pride, he was arrogant, and he thought that the, everything that he had done was his. That's what he said, remember? If you go back and read chapter 4, look at, look at my kingdom, look at this majestic uh, kingdom that I have built, look at the people that are subject to me, look at the wealth that I have. And God humbled him, didn't he, big time. God brought him down, took, took him off his throne, uh, lost his mind for a period of time. Actually had to live out in the field with the, with the animals. I mean, that's, I mean, his mind drove him out there. But in the end, you remember this, the end of the story, he, his, his, his senses, his mind comes back to him. But this time Nebuchadnezzar is very different. He's a very humble man. And he says at the end of chapter 4, he says, I know now that God is the one who establishes kingdoms. God is one. God had to humble Nebuchadnezzar. In verse 5, and behold, another beast, a second one resembling a bear, and it was raised up on one side, and three ribs were in its mouth between its teeth, and thus they said to it, Arise, devour much meat. The bear represents the Medo-Persian Empire. It was the, uh, the chest and arms of silver in Daniel chapter 2. It's the Medo-Persian Empire. 
what's this all, what's this raised up thing? What, what, raised up on one side. Y'all are dying to ask that, right? More than likely, more than likely, it is a reference to the fact, and, and almost certainly because it's going to come up again, I think, in chapter 8, you'll see it. It's a reference to the fact that the Persian part of the Medo-Persian Empire, the Persian part was stronger than the Mede part. The Medes and the Persians, they were two different empires, okay, historically. You can go back, you can watch History Channel, whatever. There, there was the Persian Empire, the Mede Empire. Cyrus, who was the ruler of the Persian Empire, brought the two kingdoms together through a series of alliances or marriages. I don't know how well he did it. But he brought the two kingdoms together in order to defeat the Babylonians. And so for a time period, you had the Medo-Persian Empire, but eventually the Persian Empire, because it was stronger, because it was bigger, because it was raised up, it eventually just absorbed the Mede part of the empire and eventually just became the Persian Empire. Aren't you glad you asked about that raised up side of the bear? (laughs) Um, Also, three ribs were in its mouth between its teeth. Who wants to know about that? (laughs) Me too. I have no idea what that means. no, listen, uh, that, may be, that, that may be one of those that we can stand in line in heaven someday and say, ooh, 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 Jesus, I got a question. What's up with them, the ribs and the teeth? Because nobody seems to know about that. A lot of speculation. There's, there's no, there's no ge- uh, consensus on what the ribs mean. It may just mean that this thing is bad. This thing just, mm, it just chomps. It just ta- and, and, and the Medo-Persian Empire certainly did that. I, quite honestly, tend to lean towards Warren Wiersbe's uh, belief that the ribs probably represent the three largest kingdoms or empires that the Medo-Persian Empire conquered. Um, Most likely, uh, Babylon, Egypt, and Lydia. Those three kingdoms were probably the biggest at the time when the Medo-Persian Empire uh, conquered them. But I really can't say for sure what's, what's with the ribs. Okay. All right, y'all are with me. Y'all are doing great. We're fixing to close. Um, uh, verse 6, After this I kept looking, and behold, another one, like a leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird, and the beast also had four heads, and dominion was given to it. The leopard represents the Greek empire. Some of you remember it from chapter 2. Uh, by the way, you remember it also from history. This is the exact order of the world empires as they came along. Um, but the, the, the leopard represents the Greek empire. Again, the wings, swift, and certainly, if you know anything about history, um, you know that Alexander the Great, who was the head of the Greek empire as it rose to power after he took over for his father, it moved swiftly and conquered a huge section of the known world at that time. So swiftly that when, when Alexander died unexpectedly at 33 years of age, he had no descendants. And guess what? The kingdom was divided into, anybody want to guess? Four parts. The kingdom was divided, Alexander's kingdom was divided into four parts. I could give you the names, but it wouldn't really matter, would it? Uh, four, four, four parts, thus representing the four heads. Okay, so much to say about this one, but we're here, here we're going to get Uh, Verse 7, after this, I kept looking in the night vision, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrifying and extremely strong, had large iron teeth that devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet, and it was different, it it was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. A couple of interesting things about this. First, notice that there's no animal correlated to this beast. Did you notice that? The, the other three, we, we got a lion, we got a bear, we got a leopard, we got a beast. 
I don't exactly know what the reason for that is, except that I think that it probably is, is, is pointing to the fact this, this one is really different. This is not just another kingdom that's going to historically rule over the world. It, 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 it will do that, but there's more to it than this. So there, it's not an animal related to it. But it is, as some of you may already know, it represents the empire of Rome, the Roman Empire. In chapter 2, it was the legs of iron and the ten toes. In chapter 7, it's teeth of iron and ten horns. But it's referring to the Roman Empire. Daniel wants to know a lot more about this. We read that, and we're going to get to it next week. Daniel wants to know a little bit. He says, well, I want to know more specifically about this fourth kingdom, because there's something different about that. There's something going on here that's more than, than just uh, looking at kingdoms that rise and fall. We will get to that uh, next week. But I want to stop here and say to you, what's exciting about this is that in, in these first three kingdoms, in, in, t- in chapter 2 he predicted them, and in chapter 7 he predicts them, and he does so with absolute accuracy, amazing accuracy at these kingdoms, when they would come, their rise, their fall, uh, what they would accomplish, all that sort of thing. And, ha- and here's why that matters to us. Because as I said, this fourth kingdom, yes, it's an historical kingdom. Roman Empire was a historical kingdom. But as you could clearly read here, we're, mo- we're going to move from the past into the future. And what's exciting to me about this is, is if we can trust what God revealed to Daniel in the past to be 100% accurate, I think it's a pretty good certainty that we can trust him for the future and what's going to happen. That's exactly what he reads. is exactly what's going to unfold in the days ahead. When? Maybe we'll discuss some of that in the coming weeks because Daniel's got a lot to say about the when. Well, that's certainly a lot to think about, isn't it? It's interesting to look at the different ways God describes the kingdoms of men. In chapter 2, God used a giant statue, but in chapter 7, He uses the images of wild beasts. Pastor Clay's got much more to say about this prophecy passage next week, but today, we're reminded that God knows the end as easily as He knows the beginning. Men may plot and scheme, but in the end, God is on His throne, and His will is going to be done. We're glad you spent some time with us for this week's Crosswalk. Each week, Pastor Clay opens the Bible and brings out its exciting and practical truths to apply to our everyday lives. Cross Culture Church is a new church in North Raleigh. But instead of religion, we're about relationships. And instead of rituals, we practice realness. We meet Sunday mornings at 1030 at the Leesville Road High School, a mile and a half south of I-540, exit 7. And we welcome anyone and everyone who is looking for a place to learn about God's plan for their life. At Cross Culture Church, we experience the liberating, satisfying, life-changing power of the cross. And it's our desire to bring that power to a culture in need of freedom, hope, and joy. We hope you'll come join us on a Sunday morning. We'll save a seat for you. I'm not the water, I'm not the bread, but I know the place where your soul is fed. So hungry and thirsty, come and be blessed. I want to lead you to the cross. I want to lead you to the cross. Cross Culture Church, taking the cross to our culture and taking our culture to the cross. Visit us online at crossculturelife.org.